following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. I would like to start by asking you to consider um, a serious question, which is, what has been entrusted to you? Whether by circumstances or fate or the universe, or um, maybe your belief is that God actually has entrusted something to you specifically for a particularized reason, what is that? Who is that? Are you a parent or a teacher or a friend or a caregiver? Are you a student, a child? Are you a, a person of means? Do people rely on you for something in your job or in your household or in your neighborhood? What or who has been entrusted to you? I want you to keep that in the, the, is it the front or the back of the mind? I don't know. I want you to keep it in mind um, during the next few minutes because at the end of the sermon, I'm going to return to that idea and ask you to consider it in light of what we're going to look at here. Um, So I hope that even if this next part is utterly boring and disinteresting to you, by the time we get to the end, you'll at least have had like a a thought experiment life moment that would be uh, of some use. So I am fascinated by the Bible, and if you've spent any time with me, you know that that's that's something that I enjoy, uh, studying the Bible. My favorite part of my job is um, helping other people to understand the Bible a little bit more, and that's the kind of thing that you need to work at for your whole life of uh, faith. It's not an on or off thing where you, you didn't understand the Bible before and now you understand it completely. No, far from it. There's actually a lot of work uh, to be done with the, the biblical text, and you could spend the rest of your days um, making a little bit of progress at, the, at a time and, and never arrive at what you might consider to be the, the full understanding of Scripture. But that's good. That, that makes it interesting and, and, in my view, fun. Now, maybe I'm just a, like the particular kind of nerd who likes that kind of thing. But there are lots of obstacles to it, which is why I think having a little bit of uh, professional help with the text can be so useful, right? Because we know that the Bible is written not univocally, not with one voice, but by many authors uh, in many different times. Those authors had different agendas and purposes for reading, or excuse me, for writing. They wrote in different genres of literature, and all of that can make it kind of complicated to understand and interpret and apply to our lives. What's more is that for lots of us, we have a great deal of baggage when it comes to the biblical text. And we are actually unable to read the Bible or portions of the Bible without having the echoes of somebody from our past kind of shouting at us that we're doing it wrong, that we're about to go down the the wide road instead of the narrow road, that we're about to fall away from the true faith, that we're about to descend into... Um, heresy, that we're, whatever it might be, okay? I see enough heads going like this in that sort of, oh, I just got a headache kind of way to know that that's the experience that many of you have with the Bible. Another big obstacle to this is the temptation that I think we all face, whether we have that particular kind of baggage I was talking about a minute ago or not, to try to treat the Bible like a, um, a spiritual catchphrase generator, Right? We, we, like, this, just the way our brains as human beings want to process and contain uh, and store information, we really would love it if entire chapters of complex theological language could be distilled down into a single, uh, a single simple sentence that we could embroider onto a pillow, right? 
Right? Now, no offense to those of you who embroider things on pillows. I, you are, don't email me. <laughs> um, but the problem is we can lose so much richness and depth and nuance that way. And worse yet, the problem with these simple, simple sentences, um, they're not simple to say apparently, but uh, the problem with, these, with this distillation is that half the time we end up misquoting scripture anyway. Or even worse than that, quoting something as scripture which is not actually found in the Bible. Right? So with that in mind, I'd like, to, uh, I'd like to give you a brief pop quiz. I will not be keeping track of your grades. You don't need to shout out any answers, just keep it to yourself. But which of the following statements comes from the Bible? Are you ready? A. To thine own self be true. B. The Lord helps those who help themselves. C. God will never give you more than you can bear. Or D. Money is the root of all evil. So how many of those, or which of those statements comes from the Bible? Which of those is is an official bona fide Bible quote? The answer is zero. (laughs) None of them. None of them came from the Bible. Some of them are um, misquoted, half-remembered Bible verses. One of them is Shakespeare. And uh, one of them, it says here, is just utter nonsense. Okay. (laughs) So, the point is, you have to be willing to go deeper um, than those, this kind of catchphrase approach to biblical understanding if you want to be shaped by the words of Scripture. Because sometimes the best stuff actually is tucked away in the places that you don't expect. Let me give you an example. Um, if you were here for the call to worship, and I do recommend that you arrive at church in time to hear the call to worship... Uh, you would have heard Psalm 146 read, right? Now, Psalm 146, it, if you just kind of listen not very carefully, it seems like one of those standard psalms of praise, right? Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul, it starts. And it goes on, O Lord, you are so very big. Gosh, we're all impressed down here. No, that's, uh, that's actually, I think, Monty Python. Um, but it's kind of one of those psalms, right? Like, it's just this, this song of praise. But, hidden away... And one of the verses at the back is a little sentence that opens up a huge theme that recurs throughout Scripture. The idea that God cares deeply about the poor. Specifically, unlike human mortal leaders, God cares about the poor. The verse says this, Do not put your trust in princes, in mortals, in whom there is no help. Happy are those whose help is the God of Jacob, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. So you see what happened there? This is, Psalm 146 is not a poem about poverty. It's a poem about God's goodness. But the character of God and God's goodness comes out in relation to the poor. And if you're not reading carefully, if you're just looking for a catchphrase, if you just want a praise the Lord kind of thing, uh, if you want something that fits on a bumper sticker, you won't get that. But God's care for the poor shines through Psalm 146. And as it turns out, that is a theme that shines through a lot of the biblical texts. God has a heart for the poor. And actually, depending on the genre of literature that you are studying in the Bible, you may find that message coming across a lot more strongly 
than just what I read to you from Psalm 146. Uh, for example, um, if you were to read from the prophets of Israel, sometimes it's quite a lot uh, more strongly worded than that. Right? Our reading earlier today from Amos chapter 6 says, Alas for those who are at ease in Zion, or maybe Rochester, and for those who feel secure on Mount Samaria. Now this is starting to sound rather ominous, particularly for people who are somewhat wealthy. Alas for them. It's a little tricky, though, because it, I didn't read the whole passage. I, I gave you the catchphrase version of it. Now, you see how the catchphrase can work in lots of different directions? It can, it can be used to kind of create this very happy, clappy, nothing's ever wrong spirituality. And it can also be, be used as like a prosperity gospel spirituality. And it can be used as a, the Bible tells us to eat the rich kind of spirituality, right? <laughs> no. It's, it's probably closer to the last one than the first or the second one, but I'm just saying, it's never as simple as the, as the single catchphrase would have you believe, right? Now, I didn't read the rest of that passage. You may not remember it from earlier. Now you have something to go look up and say, what is he on about? When you get to the stories of Jesus in the Bible, you see that he very much carries on the tradition of those prophets of Israel. And in the gospel reading that was in the lectionary for us today, which I am not preaching on, more on that in a minute, there's a particularly challenging parable. I don't know how many of you read the text in advance and hoped that I would preach on this and are now going to be disappointed that I'm not. But here's how the story starts, what Jesus tells. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. goes on to say the rich man died. And then to say... In Hades, where he was being tormented, and it goes on from there. I'm not going to preach on this text, but uh, wow. So, if you've been a little disappointed since I've been back that I haven't preached on the gospel text in the lectionary, I've been focusing more on the prophets and the epistles. Um, you're not alone. I actually feel disappointed about that as well. And so what I've done is I've sketched out the next couple of months. We're going to continue to use the lectionary, but the sermon content is going to always be based on the, the gospel reading for the next couple of months. So if you want to read ahead, but you don't want to be bothered with reading all four or all six or all eight or you know however spicy the lectionary editor seemed that day, you just want to read one, then I'm going to tell you right now for until until um, December, at least. You can just focus on the gospel passage and you will have a little bit of uh, material to read ahead on. <clears throat> at any rate, based on what I've given you from our texts so far today, you can see that the topic that the lectionary wants us to look at is money and wealth. Right? What a great way to conclude this inside-out faith series, right? We've had sin, <laughs> repentance, politics. Today is money. By my count, there's only one other topic that's really like the ones you don't want to talk about in polite company, and we'll leave that one aside. But now you know why I was so careful at the beginning of this series, on the first week of it, and you can go back and listen if you don't believe me, to make sure that you knew at the beginning that the whole thing starts with the idea. The foundation of the, of the concept is that you are deeply known and loved by the God who created a vast cold, empty universe. So today is a money day for our inside-out faith. And by the way, you don't, again, don't have to answer out loud, but 
Um, if you were to classify money as either an inside matter, in other words, your personalized faith, or an out, outside matter, in other words, how does this affect you in the world, which one would you categorize it in? I wonder what you would think about. I bet you chose right. <laughs> Not like those 9 a.m. people. <laughs> um, I guess this one can't go on the podcast now. All right. <clears throat> So the main text that I want to spend a few minutes with today comes from our epistle reading, which you just heard read before the sermon. It's 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 19. Um, and if you feel like opening your Bibles and kind of following along as we go, you are more than welcome to do so, or you can just kind of give it a listen. This text is going to give us plenty to think about when it comes to the challenge of, of processing our faith as it relates to money and wealth. Now, I want you to keep in mind the principle that I laid out at the outset today, we probably need to resist the temptation to think that this one biblical text, this, this 13 verses, or did I do the math right? I did the math wrong, didn't I? 19 minus 16, 13 verses, uh, is going to give us a comprehensive understanding of the biblical view of money, right? Because that, that's not even really a thing anyway. Again, the Bible comes at us with all these different voices, and there isn't a single biblical view of money, I don't think, um, you have to do quite a lot more work than we're able to do in a 25-minute sermon um, to have a, a broader understanding of the Scripture's view on money. But it's a good starting point. And this passage, I think, is nice because it's fairly straightforward. That's the good news. It has a clear topic sentence. It has a couple of sub-points, and it even has a little summary sentence, which um, I'll, I'll sneak in with one extra verse that the lectionary didn't provide for us. Um, so if you're a person who likes outlines, where are my outline lovers at? You're going to love this. It's going to be so nice. <laughs> Topic sentence, sub-point one, sub-point two, concluding, take communion, go home, watch the Bills lose the Patriots. It's all, it's like... <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I have to go now. <laughs> uh, I just said a lot more controversial things, even in this sermon already, than that one, okay? So you just leave me alone. So the good news is that the text is somewhat straightforward. It shouldn't, be, shouldn't require a lot of uh, like expert application to understand what's going on here. The maybe bad news is that that does not end up meaning that there's a simple if A, then B formula. Right? We are all going to have to take the principles that Paul lays out in this part of this letter and think critically for ourselves about how they might apply to our own lives, in our own communities, with our own personal net worth, and all the rest of it. Right? By the way, that's kind of the work you have to do with the Bible almost all the time. There's, there's, there are some very clear, this is for everybody and it's not negotiable statements in the Bible, but there's also a lot of this stuff where it's like, well, what do we do with this? All right, are you ready for the, uh, the topic sentence? I'll even, uh, I'll even put it on the screen. There is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. Now that's a sentence that just rolls right off the tongue and you could easily just keep going. But if you were to pause and dwell in that for a minute, I think you could actually spend quite a lot of time pondering for yourself what this means. There is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. Paul goes on to say, um, we brought nothing into the world so we can take nothing out of it. This is another one of those 
verses in the Bible that's modified slightly for the popular usage, which ends up being, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it. (laughs) Also known as the mom motto. (laughs) But he, he goes on to say even more specifically what he means. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. There's great gain in godliness combined with contentment and contentment we should be able to get there with just food and clothing. So that's, the, that's kind of, in my view, as I read the text, that's the topic sentence for this section of Paul's letter. There's great gain in godliness combined with contentment. Under that are some subpoints, some specific applications for different types of people. Depending on your station in life, um, these may apply to you differently than the person sitting next to you. This is where we begin to have to do some work together or on our own. But sub-point one, I would say, is very simple. Do not strive to be rich, right? which is what you hear all the time on financial radio and all that stuff, right? Don't strive to be rich. That's what everybody says. No, this, this does run counter against the grain of, of common financial wisdom. Paul says in verse 9 and 10, those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Did you notice the the catchphrase variation in there, by the way? It's not actually that money is the root of all evil. That would be a lot easier to apply. (laughs) We could just, well, eat the rich. But it says, no, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, that's not exactly great comfort to the very super rich, okay? But it's a little bit more nuanced than, than the phrase which kind of somehow permeated our brains. Money is the root of all evil. No, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. All right, so is this teaching for you if you're poor or if you already have means? This teaching, don't strive to be rich. Well, it might apply to you either way, right? We might, at any, any whatever your net worth might be, right? The temptation or drive to amass more is something that we probably all face. And the message here seems like quite clear and, and rather stark that this desire to amass more and more wealth can rip you apart. If you're a person of faith, it can destroy your faith by causing you to focus on other things and eventually wander away. And it can bring you a world of pain. Some have pierced pierced themselves with many pains. Now, interestingly, the problem that Paul identifies here seems to be not money exactly, but the desire for it. Unfortunately, that's a little bit like saying the problem isn't coffee, but the desire for it. (laughs) Or you could put another substance in there for you. I don't want to be overly flippant about addiction. But you see how that's actually not, that's kind of cold comfort. The problem isn't money, but the desire for it. And eh, unfortunately, when you get some money, you start to desire it a lot more. And when you get even more money, you just start, start to desire it even more. And 
pretty soon you're not really like relishing that one cup of coffee in the morning, metaphorically speaking, right? It's something else altogether. So, that's sub point one. Don't strive to be rich. Sub point two is specifically targeted toward people who are rich, right? Now, we probably need to, to think about what that means for us, don't we? Um, certainly, there is a great deal of poverty in America. The income inequality problem is very bad and getting worse all the time. All of that is true. I would bet my house, which has a mortgage on it, that there are several people in the room, at a minimum, who have a negative net worth. Right? So I don't want to minimize that for anybody, the financial pain that you might be in right now. However, I think it's important for us always, when we think about the Bible's teachings on money, to recognize where we are situated globally and historically. Right? Um, <clears throat> In other words, please don't be too quick to declassify yourself from this part of the sermon, from this part of the letter. Don't just say, well, it's for rich people. I'm going to do my crossword puzzle now. (laughs) Wake me up when communion starts, okay? The other thing is this. I'm going to read a section of the text. I want you to watch for the poetic device that Paul uses here. Now, Paul is not necessarily known for poetic writing. Um, Paul's usually quite to the point, uh, almost annoyingly so. Uh, But I think there's a very clever little word trick that Paul takes here. So if you want to know exactly what I mean, just please count the number of times and ways that the word rich is used in the following few verses. This is verse 17 through 19. As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. How many, how many times did the word rich or variant appear? That's right, four times in that passage. It starts out very straightforward. For those who are in the present age, rich. Now, leaving aside the question that we have to be careful how we define that, that's fairly, uh, fairly direct meaning, right? But then he says, don't, don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Wait a second, that's the whole point of getting rich, was that I don't have any uncertainty. But no, riches cause more uncertainty, not less. And then instead, you should focus on God, who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Now, this is very fascinating to me, because it seems like... Um, this is an affirmation for people to enjoy responsibly, anyway, that which they have been given. Right? You don't have to scourge yourself. Um, not everybody is called to a true vow of poverty. But then he goes on to say that the real riches are good works. That the real goal for us should be to store up for ourselves good works by being generous and by being ready to share Now, this is where it starts to get counterintuitive, right? Because the idea that we have in our heads is that the more we keep for ourselves, the better foundation we have for our future, right? 
And it can be very tricky, maybe even slimy, with, with a lot of the biblical finance stuff out there that tells you you've got to get real rich so that you can give it away, right? Um, you, be careful. Be careful that you don't wait until you're real rich to start giving it away because then you're going you're gonna to be um, in that mainlining your Folgers coffee thing rather than having the fancy coffee once a day that was just a great joy to you at one point. Does that metaphor make any sense? Should I just not mention that anymore? Right. Being rich in good works means being generous and sharing what you have received. That is the true foundation for the future. It's, it's like a spiritual 401k. So the outline so far, we had the topic sentence, there's great gain in godliness combined with contentment. Subpoint one, do not strive to be rich. Subpoint two, if you are rich, and we need to think about how we define that, here's how you should act. The answer being with generosity. And here's a concluding sentence, which didn't make the cut for the lectionary, but I'm going to extend this into verse 20 because I find this verse to be so moving. It's just a simple little sentence, but the way it comes across seems to me to be quite poignant and powerful and, and might cut to the core and sum things up for us nicely. What Paul is doing in this part of the letter is bringing everything in for a landing. He's writing this letter to his protege, Timothy, who's leading the church in Ephesus. And here at the end of all this that he's written, all six chapters of this letter, and at the end of this little discourse on money and wealth, he says, he uses Timothy's name. Do you ever do that when you're talking to somebody you use their first name? It can get creepy if it's too many times, but it's actually quite moving and touching and powerful when someone uses your name, isn't it? He says at the end of this letter, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. And so regardless of your net worth or lack thereof, regardless of whether you're rich or poor or somewhere in between, I want to ask you to think back to that person or that thing or that institution or whatever it might have been that you feel has been entrusted to you. I'm going to ask you to think about that a little bit as we prepare to come to the communion table to sing our songs, to go from this place. That, that thing or person or institution that you, that's been entrusted to you by fate or circumstance or God, are you guarding it well? Are you doing your level best to protect it, to tend it, to care for it? Are you using the means that you have, the blessings that you've received to guard what has been entrusted to you? In light of these readings today, do you feel any sense of conviction, any twinge of inspiration to do more or do better? Is your money or your pursuit of money getting in the way of what God blessed you with it in the first place to do, which is to guard that's what, that which has been entrusted to you? And based on how you answered all those questions, what, what are you going to do different? This is where the rubber hits the road, and I, I can't give a single very clear pastoral application that all of you would just walk out from this place being able to apply. I can't do it. You have to do that work for yourself. And so, I want you to imagine 
when I'm done praying here that the invitation to Christ's table, um, which is unconditional, has alongside it this word from the Spirit, this word from Jesus, this word from God. Imagine your first name and the reminder to guard what has been entrusted to you. Let's pray together. Gracious God, you are the giver of good gifts, and we are thankful for them. Whatever our station in life, we acknowledge that you have provided for us. May we be content in your provision. Those who have less, may we be encouraged to trust you for what we have. Those who have more, may we be encouraged to share and be even more generous. Call us from one to the next. Help us to be good guardians of what you've entrusted to us. And to be generous with what you've blessed us with. So that it can be part of your call on our lives to share your love with all people. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Communion at Artisan is a, an open table. It's an unconditional invitation from the Savior. In its most basic form, it's just, it's just plants. <laughs> it's just elements. It's just bread and wine. But it may it be for you, miraculously, the real presence of Jesus. May it be food for your souls, sustenance for your hungry spirits. May it be a reminder of Christ's sacrifice and love for all. May it be an act of unity, of communion with each other as you come to this table. Let's continue to worship in song, in prayer, and sacrament. Our table's open. I invite you to come. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.